You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Your Bible to the book of Ruth. I mentioned that earlier, but we're going to be starting uh, in this book, and we're going to take about five weeks to go through this uh, wonderful book of the Bible uh, that is tucked away in the Old Testament that maybe some of you are familiar with, but many of you um, may not, but wanted to share before we uh, read from God's Word. This has been a difficult week uh, for many people in our congregation. I know the uh, pastor's hearts have been uh, heavy for various reasons. There's been a lot of wonderful things happening. Last Sunday was glorious. I loved that. Getting to worship with you all and uh, send and resend people to the mission field. Uh, this week, though, has had uh, more steady doses of pain and struggle and difficulty. Um, there's, I can't, there's been so many things, I can't even share all the details about them. Um, but one that many of you have heard is that one of the, the couples that we've even sent out from our church, Steve and Robin Henry, uh, who've been ministering uh, out in Arizona, equipping missionaries and whatnot, uh, Robin, who had been facing cancer recurringly for the last several years, actually died on Thursday evening. I went to be uh, with our Savior. And uh, many of you know her well, knew her from her time here, have heard her name um, She's gone to be with the Lord now, and uh, we're actually going to have a memorial service here August 3rd for her. Steve is going to uh, come out here, and we'll have a memorial service that Saturday. Um, but even as, as I was closing my laptop yesterday on this sermon, and even going to talk about death, because that's where the book of Ruth starts, uh, I got a text message even this morning at 5. I didn't even get to tell my wife about this, but many of you know uh, Denny Fritcher, who's a part of our church. He often sits right over here. Uh, he died in his sleep last night. Uh, he has had struggled medically uh, the last several years and uh, had one in his a seizure in his sleep last night, and they weren't able to resuscitate him. And that's my heart as I come in to worship with you all this morning is to know that he closed his eyes in sleep and he awoke with the Lord. That Colleen is grieving, that many of you uh, who know them are grieving. It's been a heavy, heavy week, and that's just scratching the surface on some things. And grief like this can feel unbearable in the moment and even for the foreseeable future. It can lead us, if we allow it, it can lead us into bitterness or despair. It can lead us to anger even at the Lord and what he is doing, what he has done. But I think we're going to see in this book of Ruth, even as it starts in a very bleak place, as it starts with the death of several people, we're going to see that God, in his mysterious ways that we don't always comprehend, that he can use death, that he can use death of ones we love, people we're close to, and the grief that that provokes within us, that he can use it, that he can use it as a catalyst, I would say, to move his people to return to him, that he can use it even in the pain and the, the suffering, he can use it as a catalyst to return his people to him. And so... Uh, there's been much death and suffering even in our church family this week. And I, I find it appropriate that this book of Ruth, although it's going to have some soaring, wonderful, glorious things to teach us, and we're going to see as it progresses the next few weeks, it gets increasingly good and sweet. It starts really sour. 
it starts really painful. It starts with a lot of hurt right at the front of it. It punches you right in the nose as you start reading it. And so I want us to start there and acknowledge that in the experience of these women that we're going to read about, there was grief that's unspeakable. In our hearts, often there's grief that's unspeakable, but God can and he often does use that grief as a catalyst to draw and to move his people to return and so we're going to read through, we're going to go chapter by chapter, typically over the next several weeks. We're going to go through chapter one today. And rather than, I usually will read the whole passage and then we'll walk back through it. We're going to read it in chunks today and progress through it and see what we learn about grief, what we learn about the way that God works in it, or at least that he can and often does work in grief that we face as people face death. And so I want to read with you first the first two verses of this uh, book, uh, this wonderful book of the Bible, but that starts in a very, very difficult place. It starts like this, and I call this heading, uh, as we think of this idea of leaving and returning and how God uses it, grief to have people return. I'd call this beginning, leaving Bethlehem, leaving Bethlehem. The author records this. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So we get a lot of the setting of this story right at the beginning here in these first couple verses. Uh, the, the author started this story, started drops us right into the story, describing it as in the days when the judges ruled. If you don't know a lot about the Bible, that is okay. But there was this period of time that, quote-unquote, judges ruled over Israel. It's actually, if you ever want to read more about it, it's the book of the Bible right before this. Maybe you turn one page, or maybe you can see the end of it right where you are. But it was this period in the history of God's people of Israel that was not great. It was this cycle where uh, that just kept recurring for this nation, where they would have these times where they were flourishing, where they were strong, where God was blessing them, where they, there was abundance. But then there would come this cycle, this part of the cycle where they would wander away from God. Where they would drift away from obeying him, they would compromise, they would start worshiping other gods. And as a disciplinary measure, God would allow them to, in some measure, be overtaken or at least ruled by outsiders. He would let them start to be oppressed and mistreated and let uh, others rule over them, others judge over them. And sometimes that was for long periods of time. And then this cycle would go a step further where God's people would be broken. Where they would come to a point of repentance and they would cry out to God and say, Deliver us, like, help us. We've, we've rebelled against you and God would. God would raise up these people called judges to in all different ways, shapes, and forms deliver his people. But it was this cycle as a nation over and over of them flourishing but then walking away from God. God bringing oppressors over them, then finally being broken and crying out, and then God rescuing them. And so that we don't know where in that, that era this falls exactly. We could guess maybe, um, but we know that it was in that time period where there was this cycle. And the author tells us that in that period, whenever it was, that there came this more specific time when there was a famine in the land. That over the nation of Israel, there was this famine, probably the opposite of what we've experienced this year in our environment, where there was a lack of rain. There was no crops growing. There was hardly enough to survive on. And in our day and age, that may just feel random to us. 
that may just feel like, hey, you know what, this is just a down year, this is a rough season. But in in these days, as God interacted with the people of Israel, there was no coincidences when it came to rain and lack of rain, when it came to abundance of crops and lack of crops. God had told them, if you obey me, there will be blessing, even economically and in your uh, crops and even in the abundance of your fields. But if you compromise, there will be consequences. There will be even potential famines, things like that. And so we know that this is a downtime in that cycle. No matter where we are in history, it's some downtime of that cycle where they've been disobedient and where God's had these consequences of famine come upon them. And you can imagine there's this, this family that started to be described here with the head of this family named Elimelech, this, this husband, this father, And you can imagine being in his shoes wondering, what do I do here? I'm part of God's people. I'm living in this land. But because of our disobedience, there's this famine. And we barely have enough to eat. We don't even have enough to live on. What do I do? And he has his family leave. We read that, right? That they, they left. And they go into the country of Moab and remain there. And we don't know what all is going on. There's a bunch of mystery here at the beginning. We don't know what's motivating him. We don't know if this is a sign of him seeking to be faithful as a husband, faithful as a dad. I, I want to try to provide for my family. We don't know if it's more like I'm angry at all these people. I'm angry at God and I don't trust him. So I'm going to go elsewhere. We don't know exactly. But we could imagine. We could put ourselves in his shoes, right? He may feel a sense of desperation saying, I need to do something. I need to get us to a place where we can survive, where we can live. And whatever the motivation, we know at minimum what Elimelech decides to do is he decides to move his family away from the people of God. He decides to move them to Moab. And we can see, I just say as an aside, that this is never a wise move for any person to move away from God's people. To drift away from them, no matter what's motivating it, whether it's anger or frustration, or I think that a way of life apart from God's people might be more pleasant and easier, and whatever fill-in-the-blank motive to walk away, it is never wise to move away from God's people. But we see that's what Elimelech leads his family to do. And they go to sojourn in the land of Moab, the author tells us, right? They go to sojourn there. That means they intended for it to be temporary. They intended for it to be kind of this, maybe this prolonged season, but they go there not to stay originally, but to sojourn there, to stay there for a while and maybe come back when times are better. But they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. That may mean nothing to us, to them, to the Israelites. This would have been this notorious nation of people had a horrible track record with the Israelites who would have mistreated them, who would have disliked them, and it would have been returned in favor. And I don't have to tell you all the details, but to just know that these people, the Moabites, would have had this terrible reputation. And God had even cautioned his people about how they would engage with them, how warning against marriage towards them and with them, things like this. But they go there. That's where Elimelech decides to leave uh, Bethlehem and go to, and their stay ends up being longer than expected. And so they leave Bethlehem. They leave this town of Bethlehem, and they go to the land of Moab. And this next section, verses 3 to 5, I want to read those. And I'd call this section, if they had left Bethlehem, I would call this section returning to dust. Returning to dust. Follow with me, verses uh, 3 through 5 says, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. This is hard to even imagine. Again, there's a lot left for us to, to speculate about of what happened and why they die and all these types of things. But I would note this, that part of the curse that has been laid upon all of us as human beings Part of the curse that was laid upon us when Adam and Eve first sinned long ago was that God said someday each and every one of us will return to dust. That's how he phrased it. That we may have life that flourishes, it springs up, we feel strong, we, we feel uh, vitality in, in us, and it may last for numerous decades, but someday death will come for every human being. We've experienced that this week. Someday it will come for us. And God says that someday our bodies will die and they will return to dust. And we see that come true here. We don't know what the cause of death was, but what we do know happened is that Elimelech, this father, this husband, he died. And it leaves Naomi husbandless. It leaves her a widow, but with two sons to care for in this foreign land. You can imagine that, how difficult that would be. But they stay there. And we don't know a lot of details again, but we know that her, their two sons, Malon and Chilion, they married two women from Moab, two Moabite wives. Their names are Orpah and Ruth, the namesake of this book. And I would note for you not to gloss over the fact that it says that they are there 10 years. So they're there a long time. But note there's no children. There's no grandchildren. So it's uh, Ruth and then her two sons and these two wives. And she probably had this hope that, okay, we may be all right. Like maybe we can have children uh, that come from them that can be grandchildren that in our society could grow up and provide for us. But no grandchildren are coming. And then we know that these two sons, Malon and Chilion, died. I want you to think about what this was like for Naomi. Because we could read that and just blow right by that. But think about how her joy and her hope probably decreased at every graveside. When her husband dies, how is she feeling? What is she thinking? What's going through her heart? When Malon or Chilion dies, whichever one comes first, is her heart starting to sink, thinking, man, our chances are getting thinner. And then when the other son dies, it seems like, and we're going to see this story, that most all of her hope is gone. That now it's her and these two young women that she loves, but they have no hope as far as their society is organized to thrive and to flourish. And they're left there sitting in their grief as their, their father, their husbands, as they go to the grave. So these men return to dust. And this provokes something we're going to see in verses 6 and 7 in Naomi. And I, I call this section returning to Bethlehem. Returning to Bethlehem. So God is going to use the death of these men and the situation that he's put them in to prompt Naomi to want to go back. To say, man, we need to go back to the people of God. We need to go back to the land. And so verses 6 and 7 record this. It says that then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
So we see here that, that God is using the death of these men and the, the immense suffering and grief that Naomi was sitting in and that, that Orpah and Ruth were sitting in. He, he prompts her because of her grief. Nothing else had induced it. Nothing else had moved her to say, I need to go back. I want to go back. But now the death of these men has. Had prompted us thought, we need to go back. I need to go back to Bethlehem. I need to go back to Judah. And this is the first mention of God in this book, right? We, we haven't heard his name yet, but we see uh, God referencing. Because in Moab, where they've been, somehow they've heard that, hey, back in the land of Judah, back in the land of Israel, that God has changed things. God has started to bless them again. God has started to let the fields grow, let them thrive again. And we see the first note here in this story that God is behind all the events of our life. God is behind death, he is behind life, he is behind famine, he is behind abundance. But this is the first note of that, that God is directing everything. God is behind every, uh, every part of every story in our lives and in our world. Naomi, in her desperation, I think, doesn't know where else to turn to other than Bethlehem. She's left with nothing. She's in a foreign land. She's left with these two younger women who are widows. They have no economic ability to, to thrive. And I think she doesn't know where else to go. So she, with these two young women, initially starts to head back to Bethlehem. She starts to make that long journey back home to God's people. I would say before we move on to the rest of the story, I think we can learn something, although Naomi's going to make some mistakes here, I think we can learn something from her, that when we experience grief, when we experience death of people who are near to us, we ought to never isolate ourselves. Like we can be tempted to just turn inward and just either not talk about it, stuff it, just let our grief weigh on our own heart and mind. But Naomi at least knew enough that she needed to be around others, that she needed to have people around her to care for her, to help her think through this. And we would be wise to follow her example when we experience grief ourselves, to make sure we are around God's people, that we are talking to them, that we have people who can grieve with us and help us through this time. But I think we see in this story with what happens to Naomi that God at times, and maybe he's done this in your life, or maybe he'll do it in your life in the future, that sometimes God removes good gifts from our life. He removes even people who are dear to us and lets us sit in that emptiness. He lets us sit in that hollow place where we feel our loss and our pain. We, we long for what we used to have. He lets us sit in that and we, it may be mysterious to us, but we see this with Naomi, that he is using it. He can use it, and he wants to use those losses and those pains to draw you nearer to him. As he removes those people, as wonderful as they are, who are temporary and limited in your life, as he removes them, he wants to press you to know and draw near to him, the one who is unlimited, one who will never die one who will never leave you or forsake you. He, he allows these people, these precious gifts to be removed from us as a means of sanctifying us, as a means of helping us gain perspective and, and hold the wonderful, even good gifts of this life looser and know that they came from his hand and that he may remove them, but that he is still trustworthy. 
And I think we have this experience as human beings where sometimes in life, when God just blesses us and lets goodness abound to us and lets us have wonderful families and he lets us have pleasant experiences, that is so easy as human beings for us to be lulled into self-sufficiency, to be lulled into forgetting God, to just look at the gifts that he's given me and think, these are enough. Thank you, God, but these are enough. And sometimes he removes them from us to remember that they were gifts from him in the first place to us. And that we ought to remember their place, that they are good and wonderful gifts, but they are temporary gifts. They are small gifts, small tokens in comparison to having him. And he removes them sometimes for us and lets us sit in our pain to remind us of that. We've shared this quote before, but I thought it was so appropriate. I wanted to share it again. C.S. Lewis wrote this one time. He said this, that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures and speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There are times that God, even for his people sometimes, if we've gotten forgetful of him, there are times where he removes the people in our lives, not as a punishment, not as a judgment to us, but a small part of what he may be trying to do is to shout to us, say, you need me. You've had this person. This has been a wonderful gift, but you need me infinitely more than you need this person. And you have me. And he wants to stir that perspective in us. There's a million other things he's probably seeking to do, but that is one, is that he's removing good gifts from us to let us know the true gift that we have in him. And so we see Naomi start this trip back to Bethlehem. We see her start to take Orpah and Ruth back to Bethlehem with her, which they've probably never seen, they've just heard about in her words. But as she does, as she's taking them back, we start to see as we go on that she starts to question, I think, inside her mind whether she should bring these ladies with her. Like whether that's the wisest, best thing to do, to have them, to drag them in a sense along with her back to Bethlehem, back to Judah, this place they've never been, that they would know no one where they'd be outsiders. And what we're going to see is that the, the death of these men has been a crossroads in some sense for Ruth. To remember that she needs to go back to her people. She needs to go back to the people of God. But we're going to see in this chapter that this is a crossroads for Orpah and for Ruth as well. And it's going to be a lot more than just about where they live, what people they live with. But there's going to be eternal things on the line. Eternal crossroads for them where they decide which God they will serve. Not just where they will live, but which God they will serve. And so I'm going to read for you verses 8 to 14. And I I would call this section uh, Returning to Chemosh. And you might think, what in the world is that? That is a god of the Moabites. Okay, that was their main god, their main deity. And we're going to see for one of these women that she makes a choice to return to it. Follow along with me, verses 8 through 14. It says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. But they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way. For I'm too old to have a husband. 
If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Let's see here what takes place. Naomi, this could be confusing to us, okay? It was at least a little confusing to me to see Naomi and what she's doing here. It seems counterintuitive to us that she has come from the people of God who she knows are intended to be a blessing to the nations, that their God is the only God, that, that Israel's God is the only true God, that these other gods are not even gods at all. Yet we see her in this story, in this situation, in her grief, telling these young ladies, go back to Moab. Go back to your family. She even says, go back to your God. We'll see. And she's commanding them. She's commending them, go back, go back, return. We get this language over and over, go back to where uh, your family is. Go live with them. Go worship their gods. And she wishes them well. She, she wishes even the Lord's kindness, saying, may he deal kindly with you as you've dealt kindly with me. She longs to see them married which they're obviously not at this point in time. She wants them to have family. She wants them to have children. She wants them to have a legacy coming behind them. And she, for whatever reason, in her grief that may be clouding her judgment, thinks that the best place for them to find that is to go back to Moab. To go back, even amidst those false gods, go back to your family. You may They're probably pretty young still. They could potentially find a husband far more easier there than they could in Judah. Now, I want you to think about why she might be saying this. At minimum, Naomi is not optimistic that as they go to Bethlehem, that there's going to be husbands there. Like at Christmas time, we sing, oh, what town of Bethlehem? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. It was a little town even far later when Jesus came onto the scene. I'm assuming it was a very small town. Even then, there wasn't probably going to be a bunch of just young men there ready to and able to marry young widows and, and begin a family with them. She's not humanly optimistic about this, let alone the fact that they are from Moab. And she's imagining, I'm going to bring these two young ladies who are foreigners, who are part of the people that my people hate. I'm going to bring them with me to this town and hope that they can have husbands or grandchildren uh, for me. That is not going to happen in her mind. Ironically, we'll see that's exactly what happens. But she's telling them, she's seeking to release them, seeking to free them. When, when she kisses them, it's a way to say, you're free from bond, being bound to me bound to my family, bound to my sons who have passed. You're free to go back. And she insists on it. And they, they initially say, no, like we, verse 10, no, we'll return back with you to your people. That, that's their initial response. No, we'll stay with you. But she digs in and insists on it. She says, no, like she's trying to help them see the futility of this. This is not going to work. Like do not try to come with me. You need to go back to your families. And what we see here. For Orpah, and this is the last time we see her in this book, is that Orpah actually follows Naomi's advice. It says in verse 14 that, that she kissed her mother-in-law, and, that, and then she leaves. We see in verse 15 that she leaves. Verse 15, which we'll read in a second, even records for us that she's going back to her people and to her God. 
going back to her people and to her God. And it, it would be easy for us to understand this decision on her part, right? Try to put yourself in her shoes. She has this woman that she respects telling her, go back, go back. It's not going to work for you. It will not work well. Just go back. Maybe you'll be able to have a husband. Maybe you'll be able to have children. Maybe you'll be able to have the happiness that you long for. And while it may be understandable from a human perspective for Orpah to return, I want you to think about what is going on at a spirit, out of, from a spiritual perspective, from an eternal perspective. Shamash, this god, this main god and these other gods that she is going back to, cannot give her forgiveness of sin. Cannot raise her from the dead. And she is going back to try to find a husband, try to find kids, try to find happiness in this life. And as she does, whether she's realizing or not, she is forsaking the potential of eternal life. For the gain of this world. For the happiness of this life. For the potential of a husband and kids and legacy. She is trading this world for the one to come. She's seeing the smaller gifts and giving up on the greatest gift of the one true God. This is such a danger. This may seem like a foreign world to us, but I see this happen. I see this temptation rise up in me as a parent sometimes where we will say things about our children or to our grandchildren, things like this. As long as you're happy, like I want your heart's desires to be fulfilled in this life. As long as you're happy, I'm okay with what you're doing. Even as we watch them walk away to other gods, as we watch them walk away to other things, we think, well, at least they're happy. And we must try everything in our hearts and minds to squash that and think they may be happy now. But what about when they return to dust? What about when God judges them someday? And they've had their family, they've had their job they like, they've had their kids, they've had their kicks. What is going to happen at Judgment Day? Was their happiness going to have been worth that? Was whatever Orpah gained here that we don't know, was it worth forsaking her soul? And ought we ever to have contentment with our kids or grandkids or anyone else that as long as they're happy in this world, their rejection of God is more understandable to me. May we never say that. May we never be okay and tell people it's okay to go to your other gods. It's okay to pursue happiness in other places other than God. And I think of how many people, and my faith I think was like this as a young person, how many young people, but people in general, how many people's profession of faith in God is as flimsy as what Orpah's was here? Well, let's say for a short while, I'll, I'll follow God. I'll, I'll stick with these people. I'll, I'll follow him. But then when they're pressed to it, when life comes to them and they have to choose, like, will I follow this difficult path of obedience to the Lord and suffering even potentially and putting my sinful self to death, or will I just pursue the things that I want, that where their joy truly lies is exposed. There's so many people I've ministered to oh, and friends that I've had over the years who grow up making this flimsy profession of faith. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with these people. I'll stick with this God. But then when pressed on that, they abandon it as quick as they can. May we seek to give young people a solidness to their faith that, that, that we press them to know this is not just some box you check off, say, yep, I believe that, I follow that God, I, I worship with these people, but where they understand the, tr- the depth of the truth that we're calling to them to, that their souls are on the line, that they are eternal beings that must only and can only find eternal life through Christ. 
let's point them to that. Naomi is compromising that on here, although it feels understandable to us. We ought to see from her example an example of what we should not do. That we should never tolerate people walking away from God no matter what gain that we feel like they're getting from it. So we see Orpah return to Chemosh, to these other gods, but this is also a crossroads for Ruth. And you can probably guess what she decides because this book is named after her. But I want to read uh, for you. I'll start back in verse 14 and read all the way up through 18. But I call this section Returning to Yahweh. Returning to Yahweh, the one true God. So follow along. We'll start back in verse 14 again. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, this is Naomi speaking, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, I love this, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. I want you to see here, Naomi tries for the third time to dissuade Ruth from going with her. She told him once, hey, don't come with me. And then the two ladies say, no, we will go with you. And she says, no, like, you don't get this. Do not come with me. Go back. And then Orpah does after challenge number two. And even as Orpah is walking away, it's like Naomi is, like, pointing to her, I think, probably as she's walking away in the distance and saying, Ruth, do what she's doing. This is like time number three. She's telling her, do not come with me. Like, this is not going to end well for you. I I promise you, this is not going to end well. But in spite of her appeals, multiple appeals from this woman that she respects, I find it fascinating and awesome and miraculous that Ruth insists and says, No, Naomi. Like, I am coming with you. And she makes this statement as absolutely clear as possible. If you follow along what she says to her mother-in-law, she first gives her this command, this older one. She says, stop urging me to leave you. Like, please, stop doing that. And then she says, where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I'll lodge. She's saying, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to live with you even. She says then, she says, that your people shall be my people. So it's her saying, at least, we know at least at this point, at least for a little while, she's going to live amongst the Israelites and say, I want to live with them. I want to be part of your people. And she's saying that she wants to do it permanently, right? We could imagine her mind. We don't know how old Naomi was, but maybe she was getting up there in age. And maybe Ruth is imagining, I'll go with her. I'll help her out for a little while. But eventually she's going to return to dust too. And then I can go back to Moab. But she's saying, I will die where you die. I'll be buried where you're buried. Like, even after you die, I'm going to be there. And she she says that your God will be my God. Ruth is not imagining some sort of temporary kind of just, I'm going to just socially come and live with these people. She's saying, I am becoming one of God's people. Even when you tell me not to, I'm going to. I'm going to worship him. I've heard you guys tell me about him for years and years and years and years. And I I can imagine her saying to Naomi, you may have forgotten how wonderful your God is. 
but I've heard about who he is. And I've heard about what he's done. And I don't care if it's going to be hard for me. I know it's going to be hard for me, but I want him. And I am going to accompany you back to his people, and I'm going to stay there forever. I'm going to worship that God. This is not just a social change. This is, I think, conversion of roots. As someone who grew up hearing about Chemosh and these other gods and maybe worshiping him, and she is staking, putting her stake in the ground saying, now I worship the one true God. Come what may, I am going to worship him. I am going to be part of his people. And how crazy it is, is it that this woman, Naomi, who had heard about Yahweh, had heard about the one true God from her birth is starting to doubt him. It's starting to maybe feel frustrated with him and bitter towards him. And this young woman who has barely heard it until she uh, got into this family and started slowly hearing about Yahweh, she has her heart changed. She's in awe of this God. That happens a lot. When we grow up around church, when we grow up hearing Jesus, it's sometimes in one ear out the other. And we lose perspective about what he's done for us and, and who he is. But it is often the people who hear it new who hear it new as a young person, who hear it new as an adult, who it really grips their soul like it should have gripped ours all along. And we see that happening with Ruth and Naomi. And I think what you see happening here in this story as a whole is not just that God is using the grief of the death of these men to sanctify Naomi, to bring her back to his people, but he is using the grief even of Ruth to save her. He's letting her feel the emptiness and the hollowness of the things she was finding happiness in to point her into the one true God who will never die. And, and to say, I am giving my life to him. I'm sacrificing everything for the sake of him. And we see often in life that grief that surrounds death is often groundwork for conversion. It doesn't always do that, but often it does. Maybe some of you in this room have experienced that. For some point early in your life, you experienced the death of someone you love. And maybe for the first time ever in your life, it made you think about your own mortality. It made you think about judgment that's to come. It made you think about whether there's resurrection. It made you think about how God views you. It made you look beyond this world. I think we see that happening with Ruth. And sometimes God does that. He, it's like a, a garden. We're trying to do a little bit of gardening. We are not green thumbs by any stretch of the imagination. But we've had numerous times to try to pull up weeds and things that have grown in order to plant seeds, in order to try to see new things grow. And there's often in our lives where there's been good things maybe even growing in our heart and life, things that we've loved and enjoyed. But God sometimes has to rip those things out. He has to let those things be pulled away from us. And it's like he's tilling the ground, even pulling people out of our lives sometimes. To till the ground, to make it ready for the seed of the good news. And we see that happening with Ruth. And I would encourage us as Christians to be attentive and be compassionate to people who are grieving. And to think and be praying in our minds, realizing that often the Lord may be using the grief someone else is walking through as tilling of the soil of their heart. That, that he's removed potentially even an idol of a person out of their life. And that we, in love and compassion, can speak truth and point them to the source of eternal life. Point them to the source of perfect joy. And we should never see these people as some sort of like, ooh, this is an easy target or an easy mark. Like somebody who's in grief. We should never do that. But we should approach people who are grieving with compassion and with truth and with the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. 
So God sometimes converts people through the grief that they're experiencing with the death of loved ones. We see him doing it with Ruth. But that's not always how he converts people, is it? Often he converts people through totally different means. But one thing, one grief or series of griefs that is necessary and always has been for conversion was the grief of Christ. I was thinking about this, thinking of grief and the subject of grief the last several days, and Isaiah chapter 53 came to mind. And the prophet Isaiah, long before Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, he had looked ahead in time and knew what his life was going to be like. And the things he was going to do in order to gain us forgiveness, gain us salvation, gain us eternal life. And he recorded things about Jesus even way in advance about the grief that he would endure. He said things like this about Jesus, that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, like we sang about earlier, and acquainted with grief. When Jesus came into the world in Bethlehem and lived beyond, he lived a life that was full of grief in some measure and suffering. He, I think, buried his father. He had grief that he he bore just in living in this fallen world. But Isaiah says even more important things. He says of Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And what we see there is that that Jesus entered this world to, to, to carry weights with us, to carry weights for us, the sufferings that we would endure to, to have those even in a sense placed upon himself so that he might help us to be free of them and to endure them. But even most importantly, Isaiah said this of Jesus. It said, speaking of his death ultimately on the cross, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, God the Father, has put him, Jesus, to grief. When Jesus went to the cross, He was taking our sins upon himself. And God put an unspeakable grief upon him because he poured out his anger that should have been directed to us, like eternal suffering that should be coming onto our heads as sinners. He was putting it all onto Jesus. And Jesus endured grief that puts the death of a husband and of sons to, to shame. But he endured grief that is unspeakable, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf so that we might be freed in eternity and have joy forever. And he didn't die to set us free from sufferings in this life. He died taking the grief that ought to be coming to us for eternity. And that grief was necessary if anyone, Ruth, Naomi, me, you, was ever to be converted, was ever to be received by God. That grief was the one that did it was the grief that Jesus experienced upon the cross. And he would want you to know today, just like Ruth, if you've never turned to him in faith, he would want you to know, I have borne your eternal grief that should be coming to you for your sins. Come to me in repentance. Come to me in faith, and I will be glad to receive you. He wants you to know that. He would say that to you today. Turn to me in faith. So the the grief of Ruth brought her to conversion, but the grief of Christ can bring anyone to conversion. Amen? We see at the end of this story, uh, the last several verses, I want to read those for you. And I, I would call this arriving back home. Arriving back home. Follow along with me, verses 19 through 22. It says that the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said... Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
I went away full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This part of the story, this initial chapter, ends with these two women arriving back in Bethlehem. Naomi coming back, uh, Ruth seemingly going there for the first time, and we see that the town is stirred up. It probably wasn't a big town, like I said, but it's stirred up like a little town can be when there's news going around. And they're stirred up, and they, they barely seem to even recognize Naomi. They haven't seen pictures on Facebook and whatnot of her the last 10 to 15 years, whatever, that they saw her when she left. They saw them as they went, but now they see her come back. And she's probably aged uh, physically. That goes without saying, right, that the whole face app thing has been going around this week. If any of you are on social media where you can see what people look like 10 years from now or 20 years from now, they got to see that in real time. They had seen her when she was a young woman, maybe with young kids. Now they see her hardened. They see her change. They see wrinkles on her faces. They probably see gray hair. They see an immense change in her that's far different even than what they would have expected by that duration of time to where they hardly even recognize. And she's changed internally as well. Her name had meant this idea of like pleasant. But as, as she comes back, that there's this bitterness in her. There's this hardenedness in her heart and soul. She even views, I, I think she's wrong in this, but how she expresses that God has testified against her. Like she views the death of the, her husband and sons as this testimony against her. And th- th- we see that they come back to Bethlehem. We see that they arrive in this town. And I would just note, and we'll see this more next week, there's a note of hope here. There's been a lot of bleak stuff in this chapter, but there's a note of hope here. It comes full circle from the beginning of this chapter to the end. That family had left Bethlehem to go to Moab at the beginning. And we see by the end of chapter 1, although it's different people now, that now they've come back to Bethlehem. We see that they left when there was a famine, right? When there was not even enough food to eat. And did you know when they come back what's happening? It says that it's the beginning of the barley harvest. That God has, has, is doing things to change the story. He's, he's starting to reverse the things where there's been pain, where there's been a lack. He's starting to provide again. And the original readers of this would have known the reason they're even learning about the story of Ruth is that she ultimately became the great-grandma of King David, who was from Bethlehem as well. They would have known as they heard, oh, they're back to Bethlehem, the town where David would come from. There would have been this hope that would spring up in them. We read it knowing that this is where Jesus came from. Like, even in the midst of despair and pain and grief, we read this and know they were coming to the city that our Savior would be born in someday. The one who would die and rise again. The one who can offer us hope in our grief. And so I look forward to the, the more hopeful parts of the story where we actually see God bless, where we see him overcome, overturn grief and start to bless again. But that will have to wait for next week. But I want to pray for us and invite the worship team to come forward and we'll sing one more song um, before we uh, dismiss. But let's pray together.